Good morning again. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6, if you haven't already done that. We've been in this chapter of John's gospel together for the last two weeks, but today we, we wrap it up. And the focus today is on the simple but all-important topic of discipleship. Today's all about discipleship. You know, in general, and uh, I'm going to start with a pretty strong statement here. <laughs> um, it's my opinion. It's my opinion. I think it's an informed opinion, but it's my opinion <laughs> that in general, our churches uh, lack biblical discipleship. We're not that committed to discipleship. Uh, it's not always the primary focus of the church. I see a lot of churches and its leaders are content on doing something like this. Uh, getting people to gather on a Sunday service looks similar to this. Uh, creating what they hope is an exciting, relevant, uh, typically comfortable atmosphere for those people that they've gathered there at that place. And then, that's it. <laughs> Just stopping there. There's not much ask beyond that. Unless finances are tight. <laughs> and then they might talk about money. But there isn't just a push beyond that. There's not a push beyond that. There's not a push for more. But when I, when I read the Bible, that's not at all what I see. And to be honest, um, I've always struggled with this. I remember being 20 years old, starting uh, my studies um, in, at Liberty University in the School of Religion, and I was really reading the Bible for the very first time. And reading it, and it just didn't make sense to me. I'd read about these, these people who gave everything. They literally revolved their lives around Jesus and the message of the gospel. They left everything behind at any cost. They lived sacrificial, set-apart lives. These people called disciples. And then I'd come out of God's word, and then I'd look at my own life. I'd look at those around me. I look at the churches in my city, and I had been to quite a few, and I saw this gap between what I was reading in the Bible and what I saw in the mirror and all, what I saw around me. And so the conviction for me was, first of all, to be this person, uh, to strive to be a true disciple. But then beyond that, to see churches formed that held people to this same standard. To see churches that were full of people who were all in, who were willing, willing, but more than willing, who were gladly willing to give up their time, give up their talents, give up their resources for Jesus, his church, and the expansion of his message. And why? Why would we do this gladly? Well, because this gathering of people would see Jesus for who he truly is and consider him worthy. They consider him, uh, living for him as the only true way of living their lives. I so desperately want my life to be a reflection of this, and I want to be a part of a church that's striving towards this as well. Um, I came to Korea in 2014. Can't believe that. It's entering into year 10. But with that on my heart, all I had to do is go back to my notes from back then, and I just basically rewrote that for the beginning of the sermon. The church I see. Um, uh, 
Along the way, helped plant a couple of churches. God's been really faithful in that. And then um, came FEC. We are a pretty new church. Most of you know that, some of you don't. Um, FEC is three and a half years old. Uh, We're a new church, but our message and our mission is really old. (laughs) Um, We're not trying to do anything new. And I had to really search my heart this week and to be able to say this with conviction, and I can, as your pastor, I'm not trying to do anything new. I'm really not trying to do anything creative. Um, We just want to see people truly living their lives for Jesus out of their understanding of who he is. We want to make disciples, which has always been at the heart of Jesus and his people. It's an old message. It's an old mission. And that leads us back to John chapter 6. Um, Just as a quick reminder, in case you're new with us, by the end of John chapter 6, we know that Jesus, I'll say it this way, that Jesus has grown larger than life. Not everybody loved Jesus, but everybody was talking about Jesus. There are some at this point who want to make them their king because of what they had seen and heard. There's a portion who are still confused about him, wondering who he is. Who is this guy? What is this all about? And then there are others following him around because they want free meals. We've been told about that last week. Jesus had a bunch of followers now for a lot of different reasons. Some are legit. Some are not. Some are interested. Some are attracted to him, but not really committed to him. And a few are with him, just a few who are with him, who understand who they have found. Or I guess it's better to say who has found them. And the question for us today is, who are we? What category of follower do we find ourselves in? Through our message today, I hope that we can all answer that question. So we're starting at verse 60 this morning, and I just have two simple points for us today. We're going to first start by talking about the cost of discipleship. That's the first point. And then we'll consider consider the marks of discipleship. The marks of discipleship as we dive into Peter's incredible words, his great confession here at the end of John 6. So here we go. Okay, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. This is how we start in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said... This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Let's remember, uh, Jesus has just told this group of people uh, that they should eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not literally, of course. He's telling them to believe in him as the bread of life, uh, who God the Father sent down from heaven. And here now, we see the people respond with, this is tough. This is really difficult. They're, They're saying, Who can accept these words in this message? And this needs to be made clear as well. That that just because the text says disciples doesn't mean they are really disciples. That's an important thing to know as you read the Bible. We see this pattern throughout the Gospels. That not everyone that is called a disciple is truly a disciple. So they are following Jesus but not really following Jesus, if that makes sense. 
right? If it doesn't, just think of like social media, okay? You follow people on social media. That doesn't mean you literally follow them, okay? Really, right? Same is true today, right? We know this about followers. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian, who claims to follow Jesus, follows Jesus, right? It's just like not everybody who wears a baseball cap likes baseball, right? Not everybody who wears yoga pants is doing yoga, right? Right? Not every pizza shop that says New York pizza on it, right? It's serving true New York pizza. It's a tragedy, right? Right? Shame on you for doing that, <laughs> whoever you are who's not doing that. Okay? I've been to your shop. It's not New York pizza. It's terrible. <laughs> right? We understand this. I'm from New York, by the way, okay? I can say that. I can say that. <laughs> So this group, group of Jews is, is following Jesus around, but now, but now we see that some of them begin to count the cost of that decision, and they're drifting away. Notice they complain in verse 61. It says they're grumbling again, and Jesus knows they're grumbling. He knows their hearts. They understand what Jesus is saying to them now, but it's hard to accept, and that's really the first thing that we have to count when it comes to following Jesus. We have to consider his claims. That's right? what it looks like to count the cost. We have to consider his claims. That's a question we all have to consider. Can I accept the claims of Christ? Can I accept what he has said? Jesus here has claimed to be the bread of life. He has claimed that he can provide life salvation to them through his divine grace. He said that he is God, and this is difficult for them to accept when they contemplate it. So this group of people, they're good with the free bread. They're fine with following him as long as they get free lunch. Right? They're cool with being with Jesus for the miracles. But now they're saying, now this guy wants me to accept him as God. He wants me to accept him as my very source of life. That's a bit far. Actually, it's a bit offensive. And of course, we all know people like this, even today. They come here for the community. Gather in this place for the community. They like the friendships. They, they stick around for the lunches afterwards. They can't wait till I'm done. Right? The hangouts. But then things get hard, and they always do. It's a pattern. Things get hard. You're told that you need to confront your sin. You're told that you need to give up every single thing that you have to follow Jesus. That Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. There's no other pathway. And that's offensive. It's not tolerant. It's not. <laughs> and so what happens? They leave. Or, and this is actually worse, you'll actually see other groups of people continuing to gather together under the banner of Christian, but they decide to cut out portions of Scripture or twist Jesus' words and then they rewrite the faith so that they can continue to have that fellowship under the name of Jesus. They redefine what it means to be a disciple. But listen, Jesus was very clear about this. 
He'll say later in John chapter 8, he'll say, this is what it means to be my disciple. If you abide in my word, in other words, if you believe in my word, believe my words, put your hope and trust, your faith in my words, then, then you are truly my disciple, he says. Again, the simple point being, a disciple accepts the claims of Jesus. Again, that doesn't mean that his claims are easy. We do not, as far as of Jesus, let me tell you, think that the claims of Jesus are easy. <laughs> but a real disciple has a soft heart and receives the hard teachings of Christ in humility. We abide in his word. You cannot be a true disciple of Jesus if you don't do this. So listen, this idea that I follow Jesus, but I don't like the Bible is not an option. <laughs> There's no separating Jesus and his word. You can't accept him and not his word. And I think that makes sense. Imagine trying to do that with another person. Say you try to do that with your spouse. You're like, hey, babe, like, I love you. I want to be in this like, growing, intimate relationship with you. But here's the thing. Stop talking. Right? You can't talk anymore, right? I love you, everything about you, except when you speak, <laughs> right? Of course not, right? Guys, don't try that, <laughs> okay? There'll be a couch for you or worse with your name on it. <laughs> right? No, we know this, right? Words, words are how we reveal ourselves, right? Which is why Jesus says in Mark 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, he says, they don't belong to me. Also meaning, those who belong to me, they accept me and they embrace what I say because that reveals, my words reveal who I am, what I'm all about. And so in this respect, discipleship is really made simple here, right? A disciple of Jesus, what's a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus is a person who follows his words. It's that simple. So that's where we start, at least. Can you accept his claims? Can you accept his words? And from there, the second question is, can I accept his claims? Yes, okay, I can do that, but how about this? Can you accept his cross and his crown? It's part of the cost of discipleship, accepting his cross and his crown. Jesus takes this one step further with this crowd, he says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? We'll pause there. The ascension here, we know, is specifically referring to Jesus being taken back up into heaven right, after the resurrection. Right? But this is really important particularly as you, we read through the Gospel of John, right? It's worth making a note of, because otherwise you'll miss parts of John. We need to keep in mind that in John's Gospel, the cross is also mentioned as a lifting up, okay? So the ascension is a lifting up. The cross is a lifting up. The cross, the resurrection, therefore, and the ascension is, for John, one unbreakable chain of events, 
Okay? They're connected all together. And so what John, or Jesus, excuse me, is actually saying here is, is he's saying this, will you be ashamed, will you be offended at what's to come or what's about to happen to me when I'm sacrificed before your eyes and when I ascend in a glorious kingly enthronement? Right? It's all tied together. And of course, it's believing in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection that gives us eternal life, Right? And so this is asking this crowd, and in effect us, how will you, or better, how do you now respond to those events, those historical events that took place against Jesus or by Jesus? What do you think about his cross? What do you think about his resurrection? How do you contemplate or answer the question of his ascension, all of which prove him to be the Savior and the king. Because that determines everything. Will you accept his cross? Will you accept his crown? Well, Jesus then sort of reiterates some things that we discussed last week. Okay, look at verse 63. Verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So we talked about this a lot last week, so we, don't, we won't go too deeply into this today, but we see this nod back to God's sovereignty, his providence again, that only those who, whose minds are illuminated by the Holy Spirit can receive him. And, and we see here, for the first time, really, this talk of the Holy Spirit for John. Now, uh, John's gospel has quite a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, the, mo the most of any of the other gospel writers, okay? And so there's going to be a lot to say about the person of the Holy Spirit in the weeks to come. But this here is sort of a, a foreshadowing of that. And one of the things that we see that the Holy Spirit does is that he brings us to life. He's the one that brings us to life, that he gives us life, that our flesh is no help to us whatsoever. Right? John here is talking about our human fallenness, that apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't, we can't, receive the bread of life. We cannot receive Jesus and therefore obtain life. Um, if you like church history, you know the story. If, if you don't or you're not familiar, I'll tell you right now. But there's this guy named Martin Luther, okay? A lot of us have at least heard that name, not Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther, church father, okay? And he once had this famous debate with a man named Erasmus, okay? It went down, right? Martin Luther was furious at this guy Erasmus because Erasmus was going around as doing pastoral ministry, really, as a theologian, and he was teaching that there, inside each and every one of us, there was a little bit of righteousness. And because of that little bit of righteousness, that human beings were able or enabled to say yes or no to Jesus to receive or to reject Christ. And so, Luther, getting wind of this, hearing this message spread, confronts Erasmus. And picking up on John chapter 6, he actually quotes John chapter 6 in front of him and this crowd, he says this, this nothing Jesus speaks of is not a little something. 
Jesus said the flesh is of no help at all. In our fallenness, in our sinfulness, we do not come to Jesus. It is the Spirit who gives us life. And how does the Holy Spirit make us alive? Notice the instrument by which the Spirit brings us to life. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So again, we saw this last week. It's a reiteration. It's through the word. It's through the word that the spirit brings us into life. It's through the scriptures that God pierces our hearts, changes our nature, and enables us to believe in the message of the cross. It's by God's word that the universe was spoken into existence. And it's by God's word today that we who are dead in our sin are brought to life. There is power in the word, and there is no power in our flesh. You know, um, now and then, uh, we'll get people uh, visit here, and I'll hear them say, now and then, it happened once, actually, no, twice, directly to me, um, but all the time, like, to another leader, and then back to me. They'll say this, people who visit, Times and then they leave or whatever. They'll say, oh, you know, FEC is a little intense. I've been told that before. What they mean by that is Pastor James is intense. Okay? The greeters are not intense, right? You've been down there, right? The worship, is it intense? I don't what do you mean by the communion's intense? I don't know what you mean. They mean me. Pastor James is intense. That's what they mean. Okay, maybe you're here today and you agree, right? You think I'm intense. Right? Don't don't raise your hands, sorry, I'll be really sad. Right? And why do they say that? I think there's a few reasons probably. Sometimes, you're right, I'm up here teaching like 50 to 60 minute sermons going verse by verse right through the Bible. My voice raises maybe a little bit too. Right? But, please, but please know, please know my approach up here, okay, how we treat the word and why we go about the word and how I approach it. I'm actually not doing this just out of preference. And I, I, God's my witness. I'm not up here for this long because I like the sound of my voice. Okay. It's actually out of conviction. Because I believe it is through the Spirit, by the Word, that the dead are raised. And so I believe that if I just stand up here, tell you what these words say, Plead with God that I get myself out of the way somehow. That transformation will take place in this place. That hearts and lives will be changed at Freedom Village through the power of the word. And so we might be a little intense, but we're going to stick with that plan and keep being intense. I'm going to keep teaching these words Every single one of them. In fact, next year, we might even be doing the book of Song of Songs verse by verse. Okay, so watch out. Okay. We either will have the fastest growing church in Korea or the, the biggest decline you've ever seen. <laughs> one of the two. Praise God. Right? Some of you have no idea what you're talking about. You're going to go back, read Song of Songs tonight, and be like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs>
Well, the next few verses are interesting. Interesting is not the best word. It's sad. But it's also a reminder of who is in control. Jesus says this, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I'll just say this very quickly. But we see here that Jesus' eyes are wide open to reality. Again, we see he's in control. He understands what's taking place in front of him. Jesus knows the plan. He is Lord over his plan. He knows that people will come and go. There are no surprises for him. None. Salvation is a gift from God. The Father draws men to salvation so that no one can boast. He knows the plan. And so Jesus knows what these words that he's speaking are going to lead to. He still teaches them anyway. And then look at verse 66. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So here we have the sad reality of those who could not accept his claims. The sad reality for those who contemplated his cross who contemplated his crown and found it to be a little bit too much. Many here, we are told, abandoned him decisively. That's actually the language. They made a decision, a firm decision, to turn away from Christ. I like how one commentator put it. What the crowd wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. What they wanted that day was bread. What they wanted that day was a political Messiah, but what Jesus offered to them was eternal bread, eternal life, provided through his death, resurrection, and ascension. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple today, you must accept his claims. You must accept him as Lord and Savior, but you also must follow him on the road to the cross yourself. You must deny yourself and be willing to lose your life for his sake. You must be willing to put Jesus in the center of your life and put him on the throne of your heart. You must abide in him and his word. That's the cost of discipleship. That's the cost of following Jesus. And that brings us to the marks of discipleship, the marks of discipleship, which we'll discuss in the time that I have left today. And for this, we're going to focus on Peter's great confession Starting in verse 67. I think it's helpful, important, yes, but I think it's really helpful to sort of just kind of picture the scene that we now have before us. I think it really brings life to this text. At least it does for me. Maybe I'm more of a visual learner. I don't know. You can kind of picture the scene now with me. Jesus has just taught, taught these crowds some really hard truths. These people who are are searching for him. They're longing for him. They're looking for him. They're excited about him. Jesus teaches them these hard truths. It's so difficult, so offensive, that the majority turn away and they leave. They leave Jesus. And so here's Jesus now. Again, you can picture this. And he's still standing there watching the people leave. 
And there's just a few people left, we're told. The vast majority, thousands, it seems, leave. And we don't know, maybe there's a few more, but what we do know for a fact is there's at least 12, maybe it's only the 12, who are there. And look at what happens. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This was the one I highlighted. Don't cry. (laughs) What a great question. Well, Simon Peter had a good day this day. He didn't always get it right. By the way, none of us do. Don't criticize Peter. (laughs) But he does really well here. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the great moment of decision in John's gospel. It's the great moment of decision. And in many ways, it's very, there's an echo here. It's very similar to what we find in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter, or sorry, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8, where, if you know that story, Jesus finds himself in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he asks the disciples this very simple but profound question, who do people say that I am? Some of you remember that? They go around saying, well, some people say you're this, John the Baptist, Elijah, you know, come, and a great prophet, a great teacher. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, or to the the disciples says, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the great confession there, right? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, for John's gospel, this is that moment here, okay? It's not the same occasion. They're not in Caesarea Philippi. Not the same event, but it's the same sort of context. And and it's here in this confession that I believe we see three marks, three marks of a true believer And I want to really, really briefly highlight those for you. First of all, first of all, we see in Peter's confession that a true believer or a true disciple recognizes there is no alternative to Jesus. Okay? Three marks of a true disciple. First of all, a true disciple recognizes there is no alternative to Jesus. Notice Peter says, To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? It's almost like Peter has considered the options himself and is saying, Jesus, look, we've we've tried the other paths. We've looked at the other options. There's no other place for us to go. We've left everything now. We've given up everything for you. There's no other person to go to but you. And this is very important, very important. Perhaps you're here today and you're struggling to believe. Right? Maybe you're here and you have some doubt in regards to faith. Okay? Or you just don't know what to believe. Here's a good plan for you. My encouragement to you would be to consider the options. Consider the alternatives. 
And I mean that seriously. Seriously consider your options. And I think when you do that, when you take it seriously, in the end, you'll find all the other alternatives to be hopeless and unsatisfying. Right? And I can speak to that from my own personal story. It's part of my own testimony. This is exactly what I did. So I'm not just telling you something I didn't do myself. Right? I didn't know what to believe. I was a teenager. Didn't know what to believe. Grew up in a Christian home. Wasn't working out for me. I didn't like who I was, what I was doing. I didn't like that God wasn't maybe coming through in some ways that I thought he should, right? And so I remember having a conversation with my mother specifically. I think I was 12. It was a Sunday morning, and I remember telling her, um, Mom, I don't, I'm not going to do this anymore. Okay? I never want to hear those words as a parent. That's what I said. I'm not going to do this anymore. And uh, if it's okay with you, I'm not going to go with you to church either. I said that. And I don't know. Uh, I know why I asked my mom, not my dad. <laughs> okay. Um, but then I, from there, I was on this journey of trying to find myself, find purpose, find meaning. And in that journey, over the next six, seven years, I found myself even more lost than when I started. No real sense of direction, no purpose. And so I, I actually started looking at the other options. Some of you know this about me. Like I've read the other world religion books even. I'm searching. Is, is there anything here? And there are so many options, right? You can consider a life without God's existence and walk down that path where there is nothing but the physical things around you. That's all that there is. There's, there's no life after death. Here and now is what there is. Right? Or you could, you could go walk towards a number of other gods, right? And there's a lot of religions around our globe, right? Or you could actually even contemplate different groups, that consider themselves to be disciples of Jesus, but don't necessarily teach what we here consider to be the true gospel, or what we see here in John's gospel. For example, I was reading very recently about this church in Rome. It's been there for a long time. I just never heard about this, but I was reading about this church in Rome. It's called the Church of the Holy Steps. You can Google image this even. Right? There are many Catholic artifacts there. Apparently, it's a very beautiful place. The pictures look so. But then, at the base of these large stairs, and you can Google image this, okay? It's posted right there at these stairs. It's declared that if you pray up these steps on certain days, that you can receive total atonement, forgiveness for your sins. And so... Even in these pictures, what you'll see in Rome today, even, you'll see people literally on their hands and their knees crawling up these steps, working their way up to the top, praying, begging God for total, total atonement. It's a, it's a sad scene, really. And while some of us, right, don't necessarily hold to that view or believe that things like that are true, many in our world have their own version of 
works-based salvation, right? They have their own steps. But the good news of the gospel, Jesus in his word says that he has already ascended the steps. Amen? He has already done the work that when he gave his life on the cross and said, it is finished, there was no more work for us to do. So today, you can go down another path. You can go to another philosophy. You can seek out another God. You can even try your life without God in it, like I once did. I hope you don't do that. Or you can say with Peter, Jesus, I've thought about this, I've contemplated, I've even searched, and I have nowhere else to go. There is no other option. Right? Disciples of Jesus come to that place in understanding. They know deep within their souls that there is no other option but Christ Jesus. Second, notice in Peter's statement here that a true disciple abides in Jesus' life-giving word. We touched on this, so I'm just going to say a few sentences. But a true disciple abides in Jesus' life-giving word. So Peter has clearly contemplated all that Jesus just spoke to this crowd. He's there listening to, taking notes. He's been there for the miracle since the beginning. He was there the day before for the multiplying of the bread and the fish. He was there for the walking on water. Remember, he, he attempted to walk on the water himself. He did it for a few steps, and then he took his eyes off Jesus and sank. He was there. And so he says, you have the words of eternal life. I've heard what you've said, the eating the flesh, the drinking the blood, that you are the bread of life. I've contemplated it, and your words give eternal life. They are eternal life. Jesus, you have the ability to raise the dead, is what he's saying. We talked about this last week. We've touched on it again today because it's that important. This is how we find true life, true joy, true purpose. It's how we grow as followers of Jesus Christ through the living word of God, by abiding in Christ and his word. And then we see the third mark here, the third mark of a true disciple. A true disciple exalts Jesus as the Messiah. A true disciple exalts Jesus as the Messiah. Peter says, notice it again, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This, by the way, is an extremely similar confession that God makes of himself back in the book of Isaiah when he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Okay, creator of Israel, your king. Right? Peter here is declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. It's a great confession. You are the Savior. You're the Messiah. And in just a year or so from this confession for Peter, Peter will speak in front of a crowd, preach in Acts chapter 2. He's going to quote Psalm 16 there, applying that psalm to Jesus, and he'll say that Jesus is the Holy One who did not see corruption, but rather was resurrected from the dead and ascended on high to be back in heaven with the Father. So understand, there is a reverential awe here in the heart of Peter. A reverential awe. And this is key. 
Because likewise, there should be a reverential awe in the heart of every single true follower of Jesus. We come to the place where we stand before this Jesus and we say, you are the Holy One. There is no one like you. And notice here as well, notice here as well how knowledge and faith are actually not in opposition, but they're complementary. I appreciate that. Peter says we believed and we know. Right? You know, there are a lot of people who think that if you want to be a person of faith, you have to abandon knowledge. Right? There are some world religions that actually even teach that. You want to have faith, you have to abandon knowledge. Just believe. Just believe. There's no knowledge involved. No. <laughs> right? Peter's faith here tells us otherwise. His faith is rooted in his knowledge of Jesus. Peter stands before Jesus and he's like, hey, we, the guys and I, 12 of us, we've been with you and we have come to know who you are and because of that, we believe. And this is now what the church of Jesus Christ is made up of. This is who we are. We are confessors, actually. People who recognize who Jesus is, confess him to be Lord, and who embrace him together. That's who we are as the church. So this is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what defines us as followers of Jesus, as Christians. It's people who have counted the cost and realize there's no alternative to Jesus. That he truly is Lord and King. And therefore, he is worth giving our everything to. Everything. Well, John chapter 6 ends in an interesting way. It's a bit of a downer, actually, as Judas is brought into the conversation again. Jesus answered them after this confession. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus is certainly pleased with Peter's confession. But there is also this reminder to these guys that their belief and their knowing him is a work of grace. We're reminded of that again. See that theme all throughout this text, right? And Jesus will give a very similar reminder to them when Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? In, in Matthew chapter 16, he says to Peter, hey, Peter, great confession. Right? You are the Christ, Son of the living God. You got it right. But then he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. Okay? Similar pattern here, right? So after the great confession here, Jesus responds with, did I not choose you? Right, reminded. And then he shifts. But yet one of you is a devil. Now, he does not reveal to them at the time who that is. I, to be honest, I don't even think they knew what he was talking about. But John tells us, looking back, right, is Judas. And again, it's a strange way to end John chapter 6, because it does end there. It ends this whole section in John's gospel, actually. And it's a bit sobering, because we're reminded that not only will Jesus be betrayed, 
But it's one of the 12 that will betray him. One of those who is closest to Jesus, someone who is considered a friend, But what I think John is doing here is closing out this section by reminding us us of what is to come, but also to introduce the section that's coming. That despite the amazing teaching, despite the miracles, all the amazing things surrounding Jesus, warfare, slander, and of course the cross is coming. We haven't seen a lot of that yet in John, but we're about to. Because as we open up chapter 7, and next week we will, we are told right away, immediately, in verse 1 of chapter 7, that the Jews were seeking to kill him. We're told right away. And so, chapter 6 ends with a bit of a reminder and an alert to what is coming before Jesus Jesus is working. He's doing his work. He's fulfilling the Father's will. But, but, the devil is at work as well. And he's doing his work. The warfare is beginning. Things that no one could see yet were happening. And he will even, the devil will even use one of the 12 against Jesus. And so we have this wonderful confession and the marks of a disciple within that confession But then we leave with a false picture, right? Or a picture of a false disciple in Judas. And that leaves us in this text with two types of false disciples, right? We've talked about them both now. There are true disciples. There are false disciples. There are false disciples. There are those those like those in the crowd who, who follow Jesus for a time, but then when they really consider the claims of Jesus, they consider the cross, what do they do? They walk away. But there's another type of false disciple as well, a false follower. And these are the people who consider Jesus' claims, and then they make the decision to fake it. You look the part, you play the part, but your motives are not pure, and your motives are not true. Let me plead with you today, do not find yourself in one of those two categories. Repent. But instead, instead, let's all find ourselves with Peter and his confession. May we all say with sincere hearts, Lord Jesus, to whom else should I go? You have the words of eternal life, and I believe and I know that you are the Holy One, the Holy One of God. Freedom Village is a new church in this city, but we have a really old message. We want to see people come to truly know and believe in Jesus. We want to see people abandon themselves and the things of this world and run to Christ. We want to see people know the gospel and then live out that gospel. We want to make disciples, plain and simple. We want to make disciples. May God keep us faithful to this message and to this mission. Amen? You with me? Let's pray together.